test, 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 test. There we go. Shabbat Shalom, Havarim. So, here we are in week five of our study of the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter two and verse five. And the author has been showing us that the Messiah is superior to angels. And we're in verse 5, and, and it reads this way. It is not angels that he subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there's a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And so we pick up today with the writer continuing to show us that Messiah is superior to angels. Which, you know, like I've said before, which tells us there must have been some emphasis and respect or even awe of angels. Something that's not a problem for us, thanks in part to this letter and our personal experience. It's not a problem for us. And I'm not going to spend a whole a lot more time on angels. But what he says is that in the, he did not give the rule of the world to come to angels, but that he took the Son who was with him at creation, by whom all things were created, and the Son was decreased to be lower than angels. He made him like you or like me as a fallen man. And he's going to tell us in a moment that God did this so that Yeshua might relate to us and even much more important that we might relate to him. He related to us so much that he would taste death for us, telling us again that he was eternal with the Father, with him at creation and decreased to be lower. And we're able to relate to him, which has never happened before. As he was the impress of God, the exact image of God, the exact character of God. Before this, we were only able to relate to him through the creation, as Paul says, and through his word. But now, God stood before us with the same love, the compassion, the mercy, his patience before us in a form that we could emulate, that we could be like. And we're not going to spend much time on angels today because I said there's a point that he's driving at today that's much more important. And we're going to get to it today. He, com he completes his discourse on angels with this point if we see it. Let's begin with what's important. Why Messiah is above all. We can begin to understand what he's trying to say if we back up a little bit to one of our first proof texts in Hebrews 1 chapter, five, or chapter 1 verse 5. It says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Let's review why this verse, this verse is amazing to me because the writer is quoting David as he, as he uses family terms like father and son. David, by the inspiration of the spirit, didn't say, you are my messiah although that's who Yeshua is, or my king, 
although that's who Yeshua is. He did not say redeemer, not savior, a man, not master, or the word made flesh, although he's all of those things, but he said, my son and your father, family terms. Remember that we looked at, this is a quote really from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we looked at the context. And the context was God telling David that David would not build a house for God. But that God would build a house for David. And we spoke of how the term house here was a play on words. And it wasn't a house as a stone or a building. But it meant a family. A household of people. A dynasty even. And he tells him how he's going to do this as he says to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a long time. You see, this is the meat. This is the key point. This is the pinnacle of his argument when he says, I will establish a house for you. In other words, a family, a mishpokah in Hebrew, his house, his dynasty, a kingdom for David. And then he says, and he will raise up from one of David's lineages the one who will build God's house. He's speaking of the same house. The house or family of God. David's house and God's house are one and the same. In building the temple of God, we learn this from Shaul. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And the Spirit of God lives in you? Anyone who destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. You see, we are God's house. As we're going to see today, we are his family. And after chapter 1 and verse 5, we get these proof texts about how Yeshua is above the angels. And we get that right through chapter 2 and verse 5, which we just read. And now he finishes this in verse 9. He says this, But we see Yeshua who was made lower than angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death, death for everyone. And again, the word, there, the, the word made there doesn't mean as in created, as in Yeshua didn't exist before. It means decreased. And the only other place this word is used outside of the book of Hebrews is of John the Baptist saying, I must decrease so that he may increase. It means decrease. Yeshua, who was with the Father at the creation and the instrument of the creation, by him we're told all things were created, who being the creator of all things was above the angels. He was decreased. To be below the angels. A fallen man. Man is fallen. Doesn't serve God. He did 
it so that he might taste death for everyone. Why did he, why did that, why is that the point of his discussion? I want to read on in verse 10. It says, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through him everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And so Yeshua is not ashamed to call them brothers. The author says that Yeshua, who is David's son, brought many sons to glory. And that it was fitting that God do this. Now, listen, we know that God is the judge of all creations. He sees all things. He knows all things. He knows every circumstance in your life, your thoughts, your heart, the core of your very actions. He can judge, and his judgments are fair because he takes the whole thing into consideration. And yet, knowing that he is the eminently fair judge, taking all things into consideration, to consideration as he judges, the author says it was fitting for him to cause Yeshua to suffer. It was fitting that he suffered death for everyone who believed Yeshua had to be decreased so that he could suffer death to bring others to glory with the Father. How could the life of one so righteous be fitting to take? Well, let me put it this way on a lighter side. You might remember a show called Star Trek. And there was a good Jewish boy on there who played Spock. And through him, we got live long and prosper. Right? He took the sheen that's made by the hands of the high priest in the ironic benediction and applied it to live long and prosper. Right? Well, there's something else that he said that applies here. He said, and you might remember him saying this many times, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one or the few. Well, God sent Yeshua because the eternal lives of many outweigh the mortal life of one. Even though the one was the dearest of all to him. God saw it was fitting Because the one dearest to him was the only one righteous enough to do what he did. He also says that the Father made Yeshua perfect through suffering. And if you look at that word perfect, it means to make perfect, complete. To finish, to bring to an end. He was made perfect and through him you are made perfect in the sense of it's a completion. It's a complete work, a finished work, a perfect work. And he's saying, if you look at these verses as a whole, that Yeshua was perfect with the Father, creator of all things by him, created all things by him, through him all things were made, and then he was made lower than the angels like us. You know, we're not perfect. But through his suffering, through the unrighteous act of his suffering and his life being taken from this righteous man, Yeshua, 
returned to perfection and he's seated at the right hand of God as we spoke of in previous lessons. He shares the throne of God with God in power and authority. And amazingly, he shares that perfection with you. Well, I don't know about you, but I can't look at this and not think of the Akeda. Have the Akeda come to mind. The only other place you find a righteous man about to be sacrificed is the Akeda, the only place in Scripture. And we're told that it was a test, a test for Abraham. And Abraham passed the test. He went to the mountain of God and offered his son. And no, his son's life wasn't taken from him, but as sure as I live and breathe, he was going to offer his son. Except for this, Genesis chapter 22. When they reached the place God told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on top of the wood. He reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here am I, he replied, do not lay your hand on that boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son. And so here we have Abraham offer his son. But before he can accomplish the deed, the fair judge of the universe says, don't lay a hand on the boy. You know, the rabbis looked at this as vicarious atonement. They'll tell you, the rabbis will tell you, there's no such thing in Scripture or in Jewish tradition as vicarious atonement. That's not true. On the day of judgment, when by tradition the heavenly courts in session and the deeds of men are examined, what day is that? Rosh Hashanah. The Jewish people read this, every Rosh Hashanah. May the binding with which our father Abraham bound his son Isaac upon the altar, be seen before you and the manner with which he overcame his love in order to do your will with a perfect heart. Remember today the binding of Isaac with mercy to his descendants. That's vicarious atonement. The judge of the universe, however, says, no, don't lay a hand on the boy. Because contrary to this tradition, the life of Isaac could not atone for anyone. And so God himself will provide the lamb, my son. God said it was fitting to take the life of the one who was, and who was decreased to be as fallen man. And because of this one life, he could make atonement. Fair? No. Fitting? Yes. This so that he might be the author, uh, that's what this translation says. The King James says captain, the Greek word says this, chief, leader, prince, one that takes the lead in anything and thus affords an example, a predecessor in a manner, a pioneer. He was the leader, the prince, who by his lead perfected all things through his suffering, He made Yeshua the one that takes the lead, thereby becoming an example for us. So, if that is correct, then we should all be willing 
and not just willing, we should all purpose ourselves to suffer, to give our lives for the needs of the many, the others. We should do it through Yeshua's example. The author tells us why he did this next. He says, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. The NIV actually adds the word family there. Other translations add the word father. The King James just says one. And it's faithful to the original text. And even though the King James is faithful to the Greek, it's obvious why the NIV says family. And others say father because next Yeshua says, so you, so next, and next the author says, so Yeshua is not ashamed to call them brothers. Yeshua is our brother. And if he's our brother, then we are also, each of us, brothers in the same family, the same father. All of these two chapters, the discourse about angels was to show that Yeshua came and fittingly doing what he did so that we might be a family, the family of God, brothers and sisters of the family of God, the house of David. You know, you hear this all the time. You go into many churches or or congregations and you hear people, you hear the greeter say, hey, my name is so-and-so, brother. What's your name, brother? Let me say, you have to let this sink in, into your core of your being. It has to register in your heart. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I read these things, they don't sink in like that, unless I dwell and pray on them for a while. I don't think for a moment that the greeter who spoke those words above really contemplated the true meaning of what he's saying. We're brothers in the same family. We're all made in the same family through Yeshua. He's our example. The one who gave us, gave his life to make brotherhood between us possible so that we might, by his example, give our lives to further the family of God. Think about family for a moment. There is no other bond in life Stronger than family. And no doubt that's the reason God uses this example. You are born into a family. And when you grow up, you marry into another family. You begin another family. We're brothers and sisters, and it's a bond that really can't be broken. You know, with your brothers and sisters, you may spat, you may fight, but there's always something that draws you back to one another, to reconciliation. Why? Because you are family. You may be angry with your brother or your sister, but the draw of family brings you back to reconciliation. You may be living your life in a way that's despicable to your brothers or your father or your mother, but you are still family. That's why the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal son, he tramples on his family. He squanders his inheritance. But when he returns, beaten, broken, and dirtied by life, he's family. He's the father's son. You may do something that doesn't sit well with your father or your mother, but the love, the bond brings you together, that brings you back together, is family. 
We have become brothers in Yeshua with Yeshua as our example. He's our brother. His father, our father. His brothers, our brothers. His sisters, our sisters. Yeshua had a father, a mother, brothers. Let's read what he says about them in chapter 12, verse 46 of Matthew. While Yeshua was still sitting, talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Yeshua, here by example, makes something clear. As much as he loves and honors his mother, as strong a tie as he has to his brothers, one of which who he knows will later become, come to faith in him and be destined to be a pillar of the Messianic community. But he says, my mother, my brothers and sisters are the ones who do the will of my father. Do you ever wonder what the will of the Father is? Some look at this and say the will of the Father is Torah and they start to spout how they keep the dietary laws and keep the Sabbath and so on. Well, guess what? They're right in a sense. But the Father has something much more important. A will that's much more important. Those things are secondary to the true will of the Father. And Peter states it for us in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's the Lord's will that none be lost, that none perish, but that all of His prodigals return. And there's only one way you can return, and that's to be made perfect through the Holy One of Israel. Yeshua uses the term, my brothers, in another place in Scripture. John chapter 20, verse 15, he says this. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. And Yeshua said to her, Mary, and she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. And Yeshua said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. After he tastes death, after he's made perfect and is able to make others holy, he says, go to my brothers because I'm returning to your Father. They are his brothers, and his father is their father. Think about this. If you had to pick one person in the Bible, before Yeshua, one person in the, say, the Tanakh, one person before Yeshua who was the closest to God in all of the scriptures, who would it be? Abraham? David? Well, I think we'd all have to agree that it would be Moses. Listen to what God thought of Moses and said about Moses in Numbers chapter 12. 
Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you and I reveal myself to him in visions, I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face. Clearly, not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, Moses? Moses, the humblest man on the face of the earth. The one who sees God face to face. And let me say, if you look at the Hebrew here, it doesn't say face to face. Face in Hebrew is panim. The word used here is pay. It means mouth. I speak to Moses mouth to mouth. I speak to my servant Moses mouth to mouth. You don't get a whole lot closer than mouth to mouth. Right? And what does he call Moses? My servant. And what does he call us? My son. And Yeshua, my brothers. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Moses isn't one of God's children, one of God's son. But what I'm saying is that every word in this book was chosen by God, every jot and tittle. And so he calls Moses his servant. He speaks to him mouth to mouth. And after Yeshua is perfected through suffering, after he brings others to glory to include Moses, he says, my brothers... My father and your father. He spoke to Moses mouth to mouth. How does he speak to his sons? Jeremiah tells us. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God. And they will be my people, and no longer will man teach his neighbor or man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. To the sons, he speaks heart to heart. Yeshua perfected you. His suffering perfected you. And brought you to glory. And yes, you are God's servants. But you are much more than just a servant. You are his son. And Yeshua is your brother. To which angel, if I want to be like the writer of Hebrews, to which angel did Yeshua ever say, you are my brother? This is what Yeshua secured for you, the relationship that he secured for you. You are his brothers, his sister, and his Abba is your daddy. Now let's couple that with something else we learned from the author. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he said, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Yeshua's message is greater than any prophet before him. To include Moses. His words are more important than Torah itself. That's why he can say, You have heard it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, If you look at a woman lustfully, You've already committed adultery. 
Well, Yeshua said something in regard to the lesson today. He said this. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. You see what he did? He just took this command. He took a command, thou shalt not commit adultery to the next level, the next bar, so to speak. Saying that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. Well, he just took love your neighbor as yourself to the next level, to the next bar on the rung. And he says, love one another as I have loved you. He loves us as brothers and sisters. And this is an inseparable bond. We spoke of that even if we fail in our walks with him, even if we do something despicable in his sight, we're still his brothers and he waits and he longs for us to be restored. And not just, through, not just him though, Abba, our daddy. He waits as the father in the parable of the prodigal son waits for his son to return. How much more should we love each other? Through Yeshua, the Messiah, we are brothers and sisters. We are family. But you have to ask yourself, do we treat each other that way? Well, I can tell you this. If we did, we wouldn't need clauses in our bylaws about evil speech. We wouldn't need a clause in there about a bait den. And if you don't know what a bait den means, it's house of judgment. where It's where disputes are settled. Yeshua wouldn't have needed to take the time to teach us the Matthew 18 process. The point is, we do have, we have some work to do. Amen? If we are truly going to be the brothers and your sisters and love each other as Yeshua loved us. We need to be brothers. Let's look at one more thing. Luke chapter 14. Verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Yeshua and turning to him, he, turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That relationship that you have with your father, mother, sister, brother, that inseparable bond. Well, Yeshua says the relationship you have with him has to be more important. And then he says, if not, then you're not my disciple. And he might just as easily well have said, you're not my brother. Not just that. But if you don't suffer for the sake of the many, if you don't put your life on the line for your brothers and your sisters as he did, then you're not his disciple. And again, he might as well just say, brother. Just as the father in the parable waited and longed for the prodigal son, son to return, and when he returned, he slew the fatted calf, so too, we should seek to restore our brother to us. Look around you. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. This is your family. 
Sar Shalom. You see, Messiah is above all messengers, all angels, all words that were spoken, kings, prophets, Moses, Torah, because he's the one who restored and rebuilt the house of God and the fallen tent of David, which are the same thing. Amen? Let's bring the worship team up.